I uh, sent Daniel Wagner an early morning text this morning, and I said, I knew he had a part of the introduction, uh, just kind of set the tone after the second song, and I said, Daniel, I'll pay you $500 if you say the following words, my boy RG is going to get freak nasty. <laughs> and uh, what did he say? What did he say, Chris? He's freak, freaky or something? So that's not, that's, is that any money? That's certainly not 500 That's no money. Like he's, yeah, <laughs> denial there, but uh We're glad that you're here today, and uh, I'm excited about today. Just a little bit of a backdrop so you don't think we're uh, completely strange here. The context of of today's talk on touch is uh, is this. We've been in a series called A Drive-Through Love. Daniel mentioned that, and we've looked in part, our target verse has been Philippians 2.5, and we've teased you a little bit about the next series uh, called How Happiness Happens, and we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians and what it says so long ago about happiness that I think is going to ring true in hearts uh, today. So we're really excited about that, but we gave a teaser verse, Philippians 2.5, on relationships. It's been our target always in these weeks, and it says, in your relationships, in all of your relationships, have the same mindset that Christ Jesus has. And that's pretty cool. A lot of people, certainly Christian people, be like, yeah, let's be like Jesus. I'm down with that. Uh, I like this church. That's a good, good thing to teach. But then you read more Philippians 2, which we did last week, and it talks about the mind of Christ and how he emptied himself and how he didn't put himself first and he committed himself to, to us. And so we've been looking at that. That's our target verse. But as a backdrop, We've looked at the relationship attachment model developed by a counselor, a therapist, a pastor, uh, and an author. I'm going to make that book available for some folks next week. Uh, I'll put it on my, uh, we'll put it on our socials this week because there's one for singles and one for married uh, folks as well. And this series is for everybody, single or married or hope to be married one day or not sure about it. This is for everybody. But the relationship attachment model has five uh, key words, and uh, he, he asserts that it's the biblical progression of relationships. The first one, I don't have the whiteboard uh, up with me me today I'll toss that thing in the sea of forgetfulness like your sin uh, it, it is no more just kidding uh, were you here last week anybody at the 11 o'clock last week which we're not having today but 11 o'clock is funny between the 9 30 and 11 o'clock service uh, I had a clean whiteboard with the, the proper words on it and then two of our children uh, wrote uh, some hearts and put their names on the board I didn't notice it until like halfway through the sermon isn't that great Jesus said suffer them not to come into me I'm like get them out of here get those kids out of this church I want nothing of them. But you remember the five words? Uh, the five words, it starts with no, and then uh, it's trust, and then the third word is rely, and then commit, and then today, touch. And so in these five weeks, we've talked about each one, and we've uh, given you a couple of, of uh, ideas, a couple of warnings, if you will, that you don't want to go too fast. You don't want to get them out of order. It all, every relationship that's meaningful should start with knowing somebody. By the way, one time Jesus in John 17 was asked, what is eternal life? And, you know, you and I would probably think with our common religious upbringing in the American South that we would say, well, it's, it's heaven. It's, you know, and Jesus' response to what is eternal life, he says, it's to know God. To know God. In other words, Jesus was saying eternity is now in session. And knowing God is what eternity is. It's not something you wait for. It's something that's right in front. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. So to know God, to know each other, any meaningful relationship is going to start with knowing. And I've used us as an example. Uh, 26 years of marriage coming up on. Look, you never stop knowing somebody. There's still questions to ask. There's still a depth there in that other person. Proverbs 25. uh, The purposes of a man's heart are deep. And a person of insight draws them out. There's still things, uh, so I'm encouraging married couples to stay at it, especially you men who are prone to passivity. I'm pointing at you. 
But I'm a man, and I know that, uh, that pain of being passive at times. But know and trust. How can you trust someone if you don't really know them? How can you begin to rely on someone if you don't know and trust them? How can you commit to somebody if you haven't been able to know, trust, and rely on them? But today is the, is the thing that we're talking about, and it's touch. And so there's going to be a couple of components to this and two big points. I'll be reminding you uh, all along the way. I've got the clicker in my pocket. And here's the first point that, that I want to drive home today. We put it in massive font. There is a life-giving power that happens with human touch. So we're not going PG-13 yet. I just want to put this in front of you. And it's, the Christian faith would say this is really important doctrine for people. As a pastor, I want to preach it. I want you to grasp it, begin to grasp it. It's very deep, but it's the, the, the theology of incarnation. In John chapter 1, John was writing to a largely Jewish audience. He was older in his uh, life, in his faith. And he wrote this, in the beginning. Recognize those words, anybody? In the, the J- Jewish audience certainly did. The first words of the Bible, in the beginning. And John picks up on that. He says, in the beginning, what was the word? And the word was with God. And the word was God. The Jewish audience, they saw this coming. This was good. They, the, the word here, the Greek word that John is using is the word logos. And it's the word that where we get our word logic. It, the implications, it carries the meaning of, of reason and rationality, of insight and understanding. Uh, one of the best words for it is wisdom. And they saw this coming. They virtually worship wisdom. And the, lar- the larger Jewish world uh, of that day uh, saw, they personified wisdom as a person, as a woman. I preached this before. The Bible doesn't say wisdom is a man. It says wisdom is like a woman. Just dropping that here for you today. But uh, wisdom was very valued. So they saw this coming. And in fact, it was the very essence of God. It was his identity. It was his character. It was the essence of who God was. They saw this coming. But here's what they didn't see coming from John. In the 14th verse of the first chapter, he said, and the word. Remember, he's talking about logos. He says, and the word, this wisdom, this, this rational being, this intelligent one, this one of understanding. He became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. A very common expression in the church today. If you're looking for a church, uh, well, I think you found it. But if you're looking for a church, uh, look for a church full of grace and truth. It's messy. There's a middle ground there. And we get it wrong sometimes. We think, well, Jesus was half grace and half truth. So I'm going to be half grace and half truth. Jesus was all grace and all truth. He was full of grace and truth. And that's the call for us. Every time I have a pastoral appointment, every time I get an email, every time I have an opportunity to minister or lead a team or anything, I think about grace and truth. Jesus was full of it. He personified who God is. And it's what the world needs today. Uh, the word, what, here's what they didn't see, the word became flesh. Writer Annie Lamont, who came to faith in Jesus kicking and screaming, she writes in one of her books that I've admired the last several years, she writes it about a little girl who was afraid of the dark. She was having trouble going to sleep and her mom came in the room and she said, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, I, I don't like the darkness, I'm, I'm all alone. And the mother, uh, to comfort her, uh, finally said to her, sweetie, you're not all alone, God is with you. And the little girl's response, she said is, yeah, but I need somebody with skin on. And Jesus, John is saying, and I'm preaching you today, is God with skin on. And why is this important? We're talking about the doctrine of incarnation. We're talking about that Jesus came and he was close because here's what love does. Love gets close. Love enters into someone's existence, 
into their experience, into their burdens, and gets close and carries that and relates to that and understands that. That's what love does. And John is writing and saying, this is our God. This is Jesus. And can I just say as a matter of historical record and fact, it happened. Y'all remember Easter this year? Place was packed. Y'all remember Easter, like the round the world? Like it happened. It was a matter of historical record. It's not a metaphor. It's not some sort of symbolism. It's not figurative language. Like Jesus came and he entered into our human existence. He was God with skin on. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus touched lives. I would say some 2,000 years ago, I heard some of you nod. You almost gave an amen. We're a non-denominational church. You don't know what to do. Can you say amen? You don't know. Amen. But some of you know what I'm talking about. Jesus touches lives. Metaphor, non-metaphor. Jesus touches lives. I want to show you a, a jumbled array of scripture that represents some of the verses. You with me? Some. I didn't have time. I went to the game last night. I got home at 2 a.m. I didn't have time. But these are just some of, true statement. These are some of the verses where Jesus talks about, uh, with the scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about Jesus and touch. Just some of the verses where Jesus touched somebody. And so what type of touch? Well, I've done a little study. It was part of, a, it was great joy this week. The first touch I want to tell you about is the touch of healing. There was a healing touch. And what I love about this, well, let me give you one passage because there's so many, Mark 141. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Not giving you a lot of context there, so read it later. But uh, he reached out and touched him. And here's what, what Jesus did so long ago. I don't know how much insight they had in their society, but man, for us, and we have doctors in the room. I see a pediatrician friend. Uh, we have doctors in the room, and look, there's a healing power of touch. And I was reading from some pediatricians in Australia. They have something called, it's a concept called kangaroo care, where they've actually seen some children actually come back to life uh, through the touch of a parent, through laying with the parent. Uh, Touch is so important. There's healing power in it. And hear me now, why, consider this question. Why couldn't Jesus have just spoken the word? I mean, that's what happened in the beginning. That's what happened in creation. In the beginning, God spoke and things came into being. Why couldn't he have just spoken this man's healing? He decided to touch him. You see, this was a leper. It may give you an idea why Jesus was indignant at religious people, by the way. It seemed to always be religious people. And Jesus said, he, he, or scripture says in Matthew, he, Mark rather, he touched this leper. You see, with leprosy, it wasn't just a sickness. It was, it was this, um, this curse. It carried with it a moral stigma of what? Any, any guesses to the Jewish people? It carried a, a moral stigma of divine judgment. You're not just physically sick. You are morally wrong. And there was a religious thing there, and we've preached this before, maybe you know this history and culture, but in, in that day, it was way, way, way worse than COVID was in our day. And the, the lepers would, uh, again, with the moral stigma, divine judgment, they would uh, have to, if people were walking past them in the market, they would have to stay pre-COVID, six feet away from people at least. And on windy days, they needed to stay further. But they were to cry out, leper, leper, to make sure people uh, knew to stay further away. And they were, uh, custom was, they would cover their mouths. They would tear their clothes. They were considered to be not just sick people who deserve compassion, but they were considered to be the outcast of society to be left alone and Jesus touches. Can I just say this? And we're going to talk about appropriate touch in a moment. You know we are. But listen, to touch someone appropriately is to bless them. And to refuse to touch someone is to dehumanize them. 
And that's what we learn in our Savior. And some of y'all are really funny about that. So just drop in some theological truth. You go figure it out and how you live and just drop in that. So there's a touch of healing we see. There is also a touch of reassurance. Look at this story in Matthew. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But when Jesus came, Jesus came and what? He touched them. Get up and don't be afraid. There is this touch of reassurance. Anybody afraid today? Anybody sad? Anybody confused? Anybody need a touch? Could you imagine reassuring someone you love without touching them? Think about it for a second. They're crestfallen. They're down. They're hurting. They're unsure about something in the future and you just stay at a distance and you don't come close you have an opportunity by the way I do the church should be also join in Jesus in Christ likeness and be God with skin on and to give people a touch of reassurance uh, this happened this week and we uh, thanks to so many of you uh, brought water Pallets and pallets and pallets and elders and staff and deacons and just uh, regular folk in our church just showed up. And uh, we partnered with other churches and Pine Lake Church checked on us and Ergon came through big. And a lot of people are bringing water and the need is great. And what was cool about Daniel Wagner and our team of people, uh, Joshua Medcalf and John Michael Holtman, Tyler Hendricks and others, is they decided, uh, they didn't ask me, they just decided instead of just giving out water, let's pray for everybody. Let's just offer a prayer to them. And you know what happened? This is what happened. Time and time again, I sat at a football game with Theresa McAlpin last night. She's like, oh man, what a day we had. Let me tell you, we were hugging folks and praying for them. And this, this woman, um, she's hurting. And here's one of our guys just saying, God be with you and demonstrating that he cares. And this is Christ's likeness. There's a touch of healing. There's a touch of reassurance and there's a touch of reconciliation. There's a, one miracle, there's several, but one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Everybody picks up on it. It's the last miracle. I just thought about this re recently, kind of a Bible fact that's pretty cool. It was the last miracle that Jesus performed before uh, his death. Roman soldiers came after him. And Peter, y'all know about Peter, right? Peter uh, decided he was going to defend Jesus. And what did he do? He grabbed a sword and he put it over at a guy named Malchus. And Peter took Malchus's ear off. And, you know, I've, I've thought about Malchus this week. I'm like, you know, isn't that cool to think about every time, like even when Malchus was an old man, he didn't forget that one. Like he'd scratch his ear or, you know, I had to go to ear doctor this week, ENT, and get a lot of wax out of this one. I've been thinking about ears this week. But I bet every time that guy went to an ENT or scratched his ear or something, he thought of Jesus. He thought of Jesus because that was, um, he was Jesus' enemy or represented his enemy, represented the enemy. And Jesus says, in the midst of, check this out, church, in the midst of tension, hatred, and fear, Jesus decided to touch someone who was considered to be an enemy. And Peter didn't get it. And you don't get it, and I don't get it, and the church doesn't get it. And th we think we're doing battle with flesh and blood, but it's powers and principalities, things, uh, unseen forces uh, of evil that we cannot see. And Jesus touches, and he offers this healing touch, this touch of reconciliation. Church, it's powerful. And we ought to learn from the greatest revolutionary figure of all time, Jesus Christ. There's the last one I want to mention to you. It's the touch of blessing. The touch of blessing. There's an example of uh, which why my joke was really bad earlier about the kids. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. 
but the disciples rebuked him. Why, why would the disciples rebuke him? There's only a couple of answers there. Like they're really dumb or evil. Or uh, there was something going on in the culture. And can I tell you, that's the answer. There was something going on in the culture. Children weren't esteemed as highly as they are today. Now, I've preached in week one, God's spouse, if you're married, God's spouse, children. And some of y'all come at me like that. But some of us idolize our kids. Like they are your life. Your, your, your God is your kid. But so we flipped it a little bit. But back then, man, you, you know, they left infants out for starvation to die. Infants that had any level of deformity. Uh, y'all know we're a pro-life church. We talk about that. Look back at that culture and see what, how unborn, b- b- early born children, newborns and small children were treated. And that's why the disciples were confused about this. And Jesus was saying, hey, God in flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. As Jesus saying, I will give you a new truth. And that is, these children, they are touchable. He placed his hands on them. And some of you may know this, similar to what I said earlier, but in orphanages, children that only receive food and water and seldom are touched, their brains don't develop as quickly. I'm looking at a friend that's adopted from overseas. They, they know this and probably saw it in an orphanage way over on the, the other side of the world. But children, by comparison, that are touched appropriately and meaningfully, their brains develop quicker. This is science, y'all, indisputable science. Their brains develop quicker. They're able to make uh, emotional, relational attachments quicker and better and more fuller in life. Listen to me real quick, dads. I just feel compelled to say this. Dads, look at me. Touch your children. Hold them. Think of ways. It changes through the years. I understand that. Tickle them. That's big at my house. Uh, that's how I've learned. Well, one day I was tickling uh, little Wesley, a little bitty guy, really handsome. I was tickling Wesley. He was like, ah. Oh. And all these goosebumps just came all over his body. Like, oh. And here's what he said. He goes, Daddy, someone should open up a tickle shop. <laughs> the power of touch. And here's what I want to say. You know what today is, so I'm just going to go there. But dads, listen, your daughters are going to grow up. They are your little, some, I'm looking at some of you, they're, they're your little girl right now. And then they're going to start developing into women. They're going to develop, they're going to grow breasts. And you're going to think you shouldn't hug them anymore. Can I say don't stop your physical affection with your daughters or your sons? Hey, guys, dads, that's when the daughters need your affection. Now, I kind of slid over to more side hugs, but I didn't stop hugging. And our daughters need that. And dads, it is massive that we are there for them, that we hold and we touch our children. It's really, really important. And so in Jesus, we see touch of healing. We see touch of reassurance. We see a touch of reconciliation. We see a touch of blessing. And what's our first point today? That there is a life-giving power that happens when we, with human touch. And the second point is this. Oh, by the way, let me, let me stay on this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Five times in the scripture, it says that. So I want, I want you to do it right now. Just turn to the first, no. <laughs> hey, we don't do that in our day, do we? Because like, they're so weird back then. Well, think about what you did yesterday. The advent of college football season. Y'all all watch football. Some of us were there live. Some of you were, you had your own remote control. And every game you watched live or on your TV screen, every game you had a team probably that you were cheering for, at least observing. And every good play, what are these guys? These are tough Big, strong, fast, pain-inflicting, gladiator-type, heavy-armored guys. 
And what do they do after the good plays? They, they hug. They embrace. They s- slap each other on the man buns. And you wouldn't want it any other way. Could you imagine Brady hitting Gronk in a Super Bowl? And they're like, uh-uh. They got to embrace. And so what the Bible is saying is what we miss out sometimes. And some of you really missed out on this. It has to do with your upbringing. Maybe a lack of touch or a lack of trust. But the scripture is saying that the church ought to be a place of warmth and welcome. So here's the thing. If you're not comfortable with me hugging you, if you're not comfortable with, with affection in this place, just, or any place, you take this with you, but just do the universal sign of you don't, you don't want to hug. Just go, just do that. Real simple. Y'all remember that, right? It's not complicated. Just, and then just go, I love you from over here. All right? But the rest of us want, to, want, to, want some warmth. We, we want to... We want this place to feel warm and to feel welcoming. So if you're a leader here, volunteer, certainly if you're a greeter, it's probably on your job description. Volunteers, uh, our volunteers have job descriptions. They don't, they don't get paid anything. That, they would ruin their amateur status. Are you kidding me? A couple of them are looking for name, image, and likeness. I'm like, no way. You're not getting anything here. Just eternal rewards. But uh, we want this place to be a place of warmth and welcome. I would want your life and your home to be a place of warmth and welcome. And so real quick, and this matters, There's a difference between giving a hug and taking a hug, all right? And listen to me, if you're on the creepy side of things, you should know the difference, and people around you know the difference. If you love someone and they're feeling sad and you you can give them a hug and they'll receive that hug. If someone is celebrating at the office or at your home and and, you're there for them and they're, they're triumphant and so you give them a hug, but there's a difference between giving a hug and taking a hug, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful in that. And there is a terrible type of touch. Y'all know this. Just like uh, that God gives us his good gifts, Satan distorts those good gifts. And man, that's running rampant in our day-to-day. Just running rampant. That's why you can look on Twitter and see a dark world of people, mostly women, going, ooh, that church is creepy. They make you turn and hold hands or they make you, you know, whatever. whatever. We're not making anybody do anything here. And let me just say, I'm, that's not a point of making fun or mockery for me. It's sad. It's sad because so many people don't trust leaders because, because leaders are violated in this area. And it's a terrible, terrible infliction from the very enemy of God. And so we have to be careful in this area. It must always be appropriate. Y'all know we've got a great staff team and we have a pretty good mixture of men and women. I believe, because of some scandals that are breaking in the church world today, I want to say this. I believe that we should be brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should have a love and fondness and, as as appropriate, an affection for one another. I talked to Laura McAlpin and Mariah Carver and Lily Wright and Lauren Lucky and these women from time to time, and I'm like, you make sure we are godly men. You make sure we are loving you and valuing you and that all that's done here is appropriate and that honors Christ. It's very important. Number one, I don't want no, I don't want no scandal up in here. All right, I'm just saying that. I like my job, love to feed my family, don't want a scandal. But it's just the right thing to do. Now, we got a little bit of time left. We'll go PG-13. There's a bond-building power to sexual touch. God is not afraid to talk about sex. In the Bible, I've preached this before, so some of you, this is a little uh, repetition, but in Scripture, like, we're, we're, we're weird about it. But in Scripture, uh, sex is mentioned almost in every book of the Bible. Almost. And uh, it's mentioned as a wonderful gift. Yes, it is procreation, but it is not. I mean, read it. It's not just about the propagation of species. 
it is, it, it talks about the, the beauty of sex and how it's this wonderful gift. It's, it's among the loftiest of God's natural gifts. I love the ocean. Who loves the ocean? Some people are at the ocean today, sneaking in one more vacation before the fall. I love the ocean. I love, I've lived near the ocean at times. I love to travel to the ocean. We've got a mid-September, mid-week uh, trip to the beach that another church is paying for. I love it. So we'll be at the, I love the ocean. I love the ocean and I love the ocean waves, but I don't like the ocean waves if they're crashing into my house. Anybody been there during a hurricane? Anybody helped a flood victim? Like, I don't like the ocean waves into my house. Are you with me? And so there's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gift that God gives. But it needs to be where it belongs. It needs to stay where it belongs because there's a destructive uh, element to this. And it's, uh, it's quite painful. Sex, our sexuality, is sacred and it's special. It ought to be treasured and prized and guarded and protected. We ought to think differently about it than what the world is telling us about it. Chris Mixon, two weeks ago here, read the whole 12th chapter of Romans. Y'all remember how it started? I think I repeated it last week. Do not be conformed to this world. And you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or think differently. And I'm just asking you today, in the few moments that we have, I'm asking you to think differently about this area of human sexuality. I am making a plea, take it or leave it, to, to leave the doors today and think differently. Think, I want to consider what God has to say about this. Some of you hadn't even tried God's way. And I want to ask you to. And there's grace on the other side if you're busted up and broken in this area. And we're all vulnerable in this area. All of us are vulnerable in this area. But there's this wonderful gift that God gives. And for some of you today, you're sleeping around. You've cheapened it. What's, our, what's the name of this series? Drive Through Love. We want what's fast, cheap, and easy. And you know I'm going to say it today. I've said it in each week. But we get over here and we start touching real early. And we really don't know anybody. We don't know if we can trust them or rely on them and commit to them. And it complicates your life and it brings great pain into your life. For some of you, pornography is destroying your soul. Can I tell you how many times I have an opportunity to talk to a man, young man, or kind of an older man? And by the way, I'm talking to men and women, because every time I do this, I always get uh, messages from women. I'm talking to men and women, mostly men, but I'm talking to men and women. And it's just soul-destroying, and it's so easily, and it's so easily accessible. And every person that gets deep into it, I talk to men and men only about this, but every man that gets deep into it, man, they, they, you just can't feel good about yourself. And you've got to have this intuitive sense, even if you don't know anything about the Bible or even if you don't believe God, you have to have this intuitive sense that there's this gift that's just cheapened. And it leaves you empty. Just a few moments of pleasure, but it just leaves you empty. And it gets so dirty. And there's this downward spiral to pornography. It gets so deep and dark. I know guys that cannot look people in the eyes or themselves in the mirror because of the shame and the sin and the stain of this. And it's cheap. And so what I'm saying is grace to everybody. But I'm just saying, man, let's fight this. Let's fight this and let's know that there is a better way. Hebrews 13, 4, I want to say it today. I hope my kids are watching. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. One of the great lies that we all believe, look, I believed it not necessarily in this area, but I believed it with other things, is, oh, I'm getting away with it. There's no consequences. I'm not getting caught. I'm okay, but just can, can I just say that you are bringing, let me be clear, 
you're bringing a curse of God into your life if you're not doing this his way. And there's, there's a place for it. There's a proper place for it. You're not an animal. If anybody's struggling in your spirit now, you're not an animal. You have the very indelibly fixated image of God stamped into your soul. And you do not have to succumb to this. And there is a better way to live. And look, I love my kids and I don't want them to live with the curse of God in their lives. And I will hold up the standard that God says, man, the ocean's beautiful. I love the ocean waves and the ocean. But when it starts beating up the house, then we have issues. God designed sex to take two different people, male and female, who are separate and different, and they become of one essence. And, and, and you know them. You know that other person. You trust them. You rely on them. You're committed to them. Uh, and you touch them. And there's a beauty to there. Uh, that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. You know someone and you know them over time and there's an exclusivity to marriage and we're astonished by the number of people who are in the church and who think they can invite other things and other people into their marriage. No, you can't. And your cheap temporary thrills, love that's fast, easy, and cheap is not satisfying. It is not godly and it's knocking at your soul. And I tell you in love, I know some people are pushing back, but it's the curse of God in your life. Your brain, you may not feel that. You may not see the consequences now, but you will. You will. Don't you want every blessing that God has for you? Don't you want every blessing that God has for you? Don't you want to realize that as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, I don't have it on the screen, but it says, possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. People are making fun of the church today on social media because of purity culture. Look, there's a lot of bad things about the purity culture. If you grew up in an oppressive religious environment, I'm so, so, so sorry. But there's a beauty to what God says here about it's actually a message that's counterintuitive to what culture thinks it's saying. It's saying that you do matter. Your body does matter. It's, it says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, I think I do have that up here eventually. We'll get there. Uh, but listen, to, yeah, there you go. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Uh, I'm reading from the message. It's a little funky, so don't come at me about the message. But it, it brings some beauty uh, past... Uh, some of the poetic language of the Bible. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the Master, God, we must not pursue this kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. It's almost like he knew the relationship attachment model. Leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. See, you bring... Uh, by the way, New York Post this week just ran an article. You ready for this? I wish I had it. I'll post it today. I'll put it on my Instagram story. Follow me on Instagram. The headlines are this, religious people, devoted religious people have the best sex. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, oh. I am, I'm not surprised at all. Because it's two people saying, you matter. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. By the way, everybody that's in Christ, some of you are dating and you're not getting it right. Listen, that other person's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you mess with their body, you're on holy ground. And so be careful. I want the blessing of God in your life. I don't want you to be cursed by doing things uh, your own way. And by the way, there's a picture of the Trinity. Paul would say that uh, these, the, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is, sexuality is actually a picture that it's two, not three, but two who are different. They're separate but distinct, and they're in, becoming one in essence. I use that when I discovered that early in my marriage as a pastor, as a budding theologian. I use that as a pickup line with Susan. I'm like, hey, babe, you want to study the Trinity tonight? Proverbs chapter Proverbs chapter 30, and you know I was going to do some of that. Seriously? Like, seriously. I mean, you knew something was coming. 
Uh, how are we doing? This is the way of an adulterous... Okay, no, no, let me... I'll tell you what. Let's back up for a second. Just take that down. Listen to me for a second. In Proverbs 30, verse 18 and 19, it says... I love this. This is uh, Solomon going... There are three things, no, four things that are a mystery to me. That's Hebrew poetry, by the way. Remember in Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates. No seven are an abomination to him. So what does that mean? It cues you up to pay attention to all six, but really pay attention to number seven. So similar Hebrew poetry. There are three things that are a mystery and wonder to me. No four things that I cannot comprehend. He says the way of an eagle in flight, the way of a snake on a rock, and the way of a ship at sea. I still don't understand any of those myself, right? I mean, even like, how does a boat float? How do all those people stay on a boat? How does, I don't, I don't know. And Solomon, a long time ago, before scientific breakthroughs that engineers understand in our day, or at least a lot more, uh, how, how does an eagle soar like that in flight? How does a snake with no arms or legs slither on that rock? How does that, that boat go effortlessly, seemingly, on the sea? Oh, and how, how does a man love a young woman? These things are a mystery to me. Do you see, the, do you get this picture? It's actually a beautiful one. If you're a woman, look, it's a beautiful picture. It's, it's a way for a preacher to have jokes and demean women and go, ha, 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 y'all, we can't figure y'all out. But it's actually a way to say, oh, it's just so wonderful. Like there's a mystery there. Uh, I can still get to know her after all these years. Like we don't fully understand the way of a woman, but there's mystery and there's wonder and that's the way God made it. Now, I got ahead of myself, but now look at the next verse because it is a jarring, jarring difference. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. You know, she's saying, I wanted a snack, drive through love. And I ate it and I just wiped my mouth with it. And this is where sex is as satisfying as a meal or a sneeze or something. Uh, years ago, Paris Hilton would do a commercial for Carl's Jr. It was overtly sexualized. Of course, I didn't watch a second of it, but I heard about it. And uh, she's eating this big burger, you know, double cheeseburger with bacon. I mean, it's just, you know, and I think of it this. I think of that when I see this verse. And to be graphic, I mean, listen, uh, the writer of the Bible here is saying this is our view of sex. And contrast that with the mystery of it, the wonder of it, the commitment of it, to being with someone and learning them and growing and figuring it out. We talked to young couples who uh, are about to consummate their marriage after the wedding. Not many, by the way, but we talked to some uh, who let us in on that. And, and we tell them, I tell the guy, she tells uh, the young lady, hey, this is, like, you have no idea when you walk out on your wedding night. Sex is not dirty, it's beautiful, and you're going to stumble your way through it. And, but that is a good thing. Like We think, oh, you've got to be competent. The guy's got to be Casanova, and she's got to be you know, named beautiful fashion model or whatever. But like, it's beautiful just to stumble your way through this as you love and get to know each other. But what a contradiction when it comes to different views of sexuality. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the guy who wants to have sex with a girl without marrying her feels about the girl the way a bulimic feels about food. The bulimic loves the taste of food. It brings pleasure and comfort to her, but she doesn't want to carry around the calories and fat of the food in her body. So she tastes it and then vomits it back out. That's what the guy is doing. I love the taste of you, but I don't want much of you. So we'll have sex, but I won't fully unite myself to you. Three things I want to say about sexuality from the Bible. First, it is good. I preached this not long ago. What's the first command of the Bible? This is so good. What's the first command of the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. Translation, have sex. Fill up the earth. We're close to 8 billion people. They say in three to four years, we'll have 8 billion people. We've done a pretty good job of this. Be fruitful and multiply. Go have sex in the right place, 
marry people, uh, but be fruitful and multiply. It is a good thing. Uh, note takers, write down Song of Solomon 7. Song of Solomon 7. If you read verse 7, 8, and 9, you'll see the man talking to the woman. If you read 10, 11, and 12, you'll see the woman talking back to the man. It's very graphic. It's like palm trees and clusters. I want to climb your tree. I want to see your clusters. I want to open up my vine. What's the Bible saying there? Man, it's all on. It's saying what you think it's saying. When I was a little kid, I drove to Jackson, Mississippi. Didn't know I'd live here. Went down the street to uh, this football stadium to see uh, two teams play. And I had no idea I'd pastor a church less than a mile from that stadium or about a mile from the stadium. I was in the back seat and my parents uh, were uh, listening to music. And anybody remember the Steve Miller band? Uh, I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. And I kind of got the sense, I was looking at them and listening to that song and I enjoyed the song and they enjoyed the song and they were sort of feeling gifts like, I like this song and my kid's in the back seat, but we're still gonna listen to the song. And that song, he goes, you're the cutest thing uh, I ever did see. I really love your peaches. I wanna shake your tree. And I'm like, man, I'm kind of like blushing here. Like, did they, and they thought I didn't know what was up. And parents, can I just say real quick, we, we asked you to send 12 and under, but let me tell you, a lot of those 12 and under, they know what's up. They know, they, know, they know what's up, and uh, you decide, and we want to help you. It's your job to raise your children, but let us help you. Reach out. We have resources. We want to partner with you, and this is an important area for, uh, to, to partner with the church in. Get help because it's complicated. But, uh, man, the Bible celebrates sexuality as a good thing. It is a good thing. But the second thing I want to say about it, it has boundaries. It really does have boundaries. And listen, I've already preached it from Hebrews 13, but it's just very, very important. And the second thing I want to say to you is it can be better. It can be better. When Susan and I married a year after um, we married on our, pretty much our anniversary, the week of our anniversary, she told me on the water in Coconut Grove, Florida, she goes, hey, I might be pregnant. And we found out she was. And nine months later, we had our oldest. And we had one in 1998. We had one in 2001. And we had one in 2004. Three kids. I mean, it's normal stuff. I'm telling you, not like, you know, some of y'all are like, you know. But uh, we had three kids in a space of of six years. And you know what that means? It means two things. Number one, we were tired. And number two, Susan couldn't keep her hands off of me. Um, (laughs) But here's what I'll tell you. Some of you were tired. And... uh, it can be better. And when you're tired, intimacy is not good. And you add to that conflict, you add to that conflict that doesn't get resolved and it's difficult. And some of you wonder why you don't feel what you should feel towards your spouse. It can be better. And so I want to give you quickly, we only have a few minutes. I want to real quickly give you a few ways where it, it, can, it can be better. Build an atmosphere of affection. In Genesis 26, 8, um, it has this, this um, beautiful passage where it says that Jacob caressed Rebecca. We ought to put that on a bumper sticker, Genesis 26, 8. He caressed her. When a woman says, I just want to be held, do you know what she means by that? I just want, to be, I just want you to hold me. You know what she means? She wants you to just hold her. And I said a week or two ago that uh, psychologists tell us that there's probably um, 10 points of meaningful touch, a non-sexual touch that a spouse wants uh, in a marriage. What's your quotient? What's your ratio? I know it varies, but at least 10 times a day, there needs to be some level of meaningful touch. I was at a marriage conference where a guy was speaking that, and I was in the crowd, and a, a guy who's sort of a friend of mine was poking his wife at one, two, three, whatever. And I'm like, man, guys don't get it. Some of you wonder why I preach the way I do. Guys just don't get it. 
sometimes. It's like that doesn't count. But 10 points of, of, of meaningful physical contact we need. So build an atmosphere um, of affection in your marriage. A non-sexual touch. Uh, fellows, look at me. Just look at me. It can go so far, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, build that in, and it really matters to, to, to have that, to hold people, to touch them. Uh, we see it in Genesis 26.8. It's part of, it could be a greater part of your marriage. Um, mar- it, it, it is good. It has boundaries. It can be better. Um, the second way, besides building an atmosphere of affection, is to increase your commitment uh, to communication. We learned early to go to restaurants that are quiet and then do this. And I, I, you know, she'll tell you this too. I'm not just bragging. Like I do this better than her, but linger. Like sometimes she's in a hurry, but linger, linger. And you know what happens when you linger? Your conversation can wander and it can meander and you'll be talking about things you never dreamt that you'll be talking about. But if you're busy and tired and overscheduled and pointed and forgive me for, you know, type A, goals, objectives, everything's got, you know, you lose that element of romance and all. And so one of the ways, um, you can't just say, let's communicate better. Because a lot of us go to marriage counselors and go, we're not communicating well. And they'll look at you and go, yeah, you're not communicating well. But learn ways that uh, you can communicate better with your mate. Um, maintain an attitude of giving. An attitude of giving. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out of bed. Maintain this attitude of giving to the other person. Uh, it's super important. You don't exist uh, just for yourself. You exist for the other person. And so to the extent that you can sacrifice in this area, is just a, it's just vital. It's just massively important. Um, last year, last April, Susan was uh, turning 50. And I was uh, like, man, well, you know, she has a lot and we don't really need things. Every, all of our dollars go to our, our kids. And uh, what can I do? And I was, um, sometimes can be frugal. She would disagree, but sometimes I can be frugal. I was like, yeah, what do I do? And so I've learned through the years that she likes, uh, she likes it when I write poems. And it doesn't cost anything except time. And uh, I can be kind of good at it at times. Or at least she, maybe it's like the parent, you know, the child draws something. The parent's like, oh, and they hang. maybe it's like that. <laughs> but um, anyway, last April 14th, on the eve of her April 15th, 50th birthday party, I stayed here and wrote this poem. I'm going to show it to you real quick. Chasing it tonight, doubts are running around her head. 
He's waiting, hides behind a cigarette. Heart is bleeding loud, but she doesn't want it to stop. Moving too fast, moon is lighting up her skin. She's falling, doesn't even know it yet. Having no regrets is all that she really wants. Only getting older, baby. And I've been thinking about it, Does it ever drive? plagiarized the last line what's that from Jonathan Grantham that last line I think yeah anyway I plagiarized from my Adam Sandler movie the last line but everything else is all us you know what I did I, I didn't I didn't buy her any other gift that was it just an Instagram post but I went home and I was a little nervous because I'd posted it and I walked in the living room and she was there alone with Lester Holt watching NBC Nightly News drinking her red wine and I walked in and she had been crying I mean, she had really been crying. And she saw me and more tears came down. You know what I did? You know what I did? I go, yes! <laughs> yes! We hit the mark there. Listen, most of the time, I don't hit the mark. And most of the time, Lauren, come up. We're late, sorry. Um, most of the time, I don't hit the mark. And I get it wrong so, so many times. So very many times. Uh, years before that, on one of her birthdays, uh, she didn't know this, but a couple of weeks prior to that, we were with friends, and I said, hey, what, what, what's your ideal day? What's an ideal day? Describe it. And so we kind of went around the room, a few people, and she shared hers, and, and she didn't know I was really listening to her because I'm not all that good at it sometimes. But I listened to her, and, and then I, I, you know, made a mental note, and then when her birthday came around, I gave, and it was like, you know, I want to I I be able to read. I want some magazines to read. I want I want a little time away. I want to hang out with the girls. I want a little spa treatment. And, uh, and then, you know, deliver that in marriage, deliver that. And it occurred to me later that uh, her perfect day didn't include me at all. So uh, you guys stand and uh, pray for our marriage. I'll just end right there. But, uh, hey, we're here for you. And can I just say, uh, uh, forgive the time. We'll get you out in just a few. Is there an abbreviated version of the song, Lord? Ushers, come forward. Ushers, come forward. Um, but y'all, um, it's so sacred and so special, but we're so busted up and broken. And uh, the place of the church is, uh, we got to reclaim this and get back to it. And for so many of you, and those of you watching or listening uh, from a distance or later this week, there's so many people, uh, you've given a piece of your soul. Because remember the picture of marriage, it's a bond building builds a bond and we think oh I can give my body to somebody and I can walk away you can't you leave a part of yourself there but Jesus listen Jesus showed us that we don't have a God who's not God up there he's a God who came near and he will help you put and knit the pieces of your soul back together and the, the enemy would want you to be ashamed of it and keep it to yourself and just try to live that way and maybe even be mad at me who preached a message that's been contrary to how you've lived but I would just say to you Go to someone you know and trust. And we, it's not a cliche. We are truly here for you.
So the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to take up our offering and know that we're here today to pray for you anytime this week. Reach out to us and let us in on your story. And maybe, maybe we can in small doses uh, administer God's grace to you. Uh, there is a life-giving power that happens when, with human touch. And there's a bond-building power that happens in sexual touch as well. And let's grow in our understanding of this. God bless these offerings, these tithes, in Jesus we pray.